0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Kino, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 27th, 2022. We're still in 2022. It's been quite a year. Uh, in the publishing, in the business, and in the political world. Uh, Andrew Hill from the Financial Times was on uh, the show uh, last month or earlier this month talking about the FT Books of the Year award. Um, and it was announced at the beginning of December and it was won by a frequent guest on the show, uh, the Keenon show in 2022, Chris Miller, for his book, The Chip War. Actually, not The Chip War, just. Chip War. Chris is joining us. Uh, he's already been on the show to talk about the book, um, but I want to give him my congratulations. Chris, uh, how did you greet the award? Did you uh, did you go to London and have fish and chips?
1: <laughs> well, I, I did go to London, had a slightly fancier dinner than that, uh, but it was very exciting news from uh, the Financial Times. And I think a recognition uh, of the extent to which uh, everyone is coming to realize that you can't think about uh, geopolitics today unless you put technology at the center of it. Uh, and that that's not only the conclusion of chip war, that's, I think, the conclusion of all of the key developments of the last couple of years of international politics.
0: Chris, before we come on to the broader political and economic uh, implications of the book, there's a personal story here as well. Um, I mean, a, a book about computer chips uh called chip war it doesn't immediately sound as if it could be a best seller or an award winner uh you're uh, an associate or an assistant professor at tufts university you're still a very young man most people certainly wouldn't have heard the view of the beginning of the year did you ever imagine i mean when i'm looking at your the reviews of the book, for example, on on Amazon, you have uh, almost seven hundred ratings, almost five stars. Everyone loves the book. It's a New York Times bestseller. Did you ever imagine that this book would take off in the way it has? It's a lovely story.
1: Well, I, I've certainly been very excited to see uh, it get the reaction that it's gotten. I I think in terms of the timing, it hit at exactly the right time uh, with governments and political leaders across the world focusing on semiconductors. I think the other um, facet of the book that worked well and that people have really responded well to is telling the story of technology, not just as a story of gadgets uh, getting more advanced, but also of individuals making decisions about their companies, about the development of, of science and technology and about the politics of it. Uh, as well, because one of the I think most exciting parts of the research that I did that led to Chip War was uh, understanding the key individuals that shaped these trends. And today, when we think about technology, we often think about very impersonal um, devices. But in reality, all of these devices, all the technology we rely on, are made by people. And understanding their choices and what they were focusing on, what they were thinking about, uh, is as critical, I think, to understanding the role technology plays as the actual gears inside of the gadgets themselves.
0: When did you come up with the idea of the book? What year?
1: I started working on it in 2017, um, but it took a couple of years to really hone in what the focus and argument was going to be and bring together the uh, extent to which I wanted to write a story that simultaneously tried to explain shifts in military technology, shifts in the computing that we rely on for everyday devices, and then finally uh, understand the dynamics shaping the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, And those three themes undergird the entire book. And it took me a couple of years of research to realize all the different ways that they intersected.
0: The book's published in the U.S. by Simon & Schuster. Um, Was it initially sold into Simon & Schuster as 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 a trade book, as a commercial book, as opposed to an academic book?
1: It was. And I, I think my my publisher took a bit of a bet uh, uh, agreeing to publish a book about semiconductors and agreeing to do so at a time before things like semiconductor shortages were even uh, in, in the news. But I, I give them credit for helping uh, me to realize the ways in which this was a story that not only impacted the specific themes about politics that I was interested in, but was a story that really explained all of the devices that all of us rely on uh, and helped uh, illustrate the politics and the geopolitics that uh undergird that
0: chris uh, authors are always critical of their publishers it's the nature of things but it's (laughs) nice to hear um an author like yourself who um has uh has put all their chips on chips and has come out a winner Uh, excuse all these stupid chip jokes i can't resist um actually uh actually um recognize that the prescience of their their publishers, of, of taking a bet, of seeing the future. Does this prove, in in terms of the success of your book, does it prove the value of big publishing, of large houses like Simon & Schuster? I mean, obviously they make bad bets as well, but we often have conversations with authors saying, well, we don't need publishers, we can do it on our own. I, I think
1: my experience with, This book certainly suggests that publishers have a lot of value. The thing that a good publisher, a good editor can do, I think, is understand the story an author wants to tell and then connect it to lots of different uh, readers who might not potentially be interested in that specific story, but can get their attention piqued by different strains. And I found myself uh, working with my editor He was constantly making connections to other subtopics that I hadn't realized myself. Can we call
0: out the editor? Uh, It's always nice to, 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 to recognize um, a successful accomplished editor. Who was your editor at Simon & Schuster? His name is Rick Horgan. Well, Rick Horgan. Well done. Congratulations. (laughs) It's nice to see young talent like Chris coming through. Uh, Chris, we, we did have a show on the book itself. So I don't want to revisit the, 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 just the book itself and, our show from October was called Miller's Law, so people can go back to that. But let's talk more broadly about 2022, your, your sense of it. As you suggested earlier, you got lucky in terms of the, uh, the relevance of your book. Could we describe 2022 not only as the year of the success of, of Chris Miller's chip war, but of uh, the year of the chip? Well, I think there's a a pretty big
1: extent to which that's true. If you look at the forces shaping global economy, semiconductor shortages were at the center in helping drive up inflation. If you look at U.S.-China relations, they were uh, very heavily impacted by the U.S. decision to cut off the flow of advanced semiconductors for AI purposes to China. If you look at what governments have been focused on in Europe, in Japan, in India, in Korea, as well as in the U.S., they've been passing legislation designed to boost domestic chip production. Uh, and then if you look at how technology is developed with um, with increasing uh, applications of AI in, in all sorts of different ways, all that is only possible because of ever more advanced semiconductors. So across all of these uh, different spheres, I think semiconductors have been the, um, the device that brings them all together, and it's taken a long time for uh, most people, myself included, to understand just how reliant we are on on all of them.
0: Why has it taken this amount of time? I mean, computer chips are, of course, the core of the computer revolution from Intel or even before Intel, from Fairchild conductors onwards. Um, Why has it taken so much time to come up with the idea of the global economy being determined by chips? I think part of the answer is that you and I never
1: buy semiconductors. Even though you own a lot of devices with intel chips or amd chips inside you never bought one almost certainly Uh, and the brands that we're familiar with apple for example or lenovo for computers uh, have lots of chips inside of them um, but we basically never see them unless you're an electrical engineer or someone who likes to take apart old electronic devices and that's led to a situation in which the typical person doesn't understand the way in which year after year, they actually end up using more and more chips. They're just buried deep in devices and never see them. I think that's the first explanation. The second is that we've only just dimly begun to understand the extent to which the cloud is transforming all aspects of not only the economy, but also uh, the ways we interact. And, and the cloud is a, a sort of phrase that sounds pretty ethereal, but it's actually just a bunch of data centers full of semiconductors strung together by fiber optic cable. And we we store more of our data than ever before on the cloud. We rely on it for processing power. And so we're all, uh, every day, touching more and more semiconductors that are housed in a small number of warehouses run by Amazon and Google uh, around the world. We never see them. We never really even think about them, even though we touch them every time we open our Phones And that's another reason why semiconductors seem far away, because they actually are far away in many cases. They're in Google's Iowa data center, for example, uh, or or data centers in some cases on the other side of the world. Uh, And so we don't have to think about them, which makes them uh, so efficient, but also keeps them far from top of mind.
0: So it's no coincidence that the year of the chip is also the year of chat GPT and of the recognition that the future of tech is is not crypto. Or Web three, but actually AI is that fair, Chris? I think that is
1: absolutely right. And the 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 Bitcoin blow up and the um and the decline of crypto, not only in terms of finance, but in terms of optimism uh, in in the future, I think is a a reminder that actually the the hardware that we really rely on um, is is more fundamental than any of the trends uh, or any of the the fads, if you will, that. Uh, that shape our discourse about technology. And and the hardware is still produced by a small number of companies. Bitcoin can rise and fall and FTX can rise and fall, uh, but the hardware firms persist. Uh, and they persisted in many cases for decades, producing better and better chips every single year.
0: Chris, in 2023, regulation is going to be in the headlines again. Uh, in January, for example, the Supreme Court is hearing something on, uh, on Section 230 and Safe Harbor. You mentioned that the world of chips is dominated by a handful of silicon valley companies you talked about google and amazon of course aren't exactly silicon valley but we know what we're talking about um do, is there a need do you think to and we're going to talk about china and international trade uh but is there a need to think of the chip war you describe in, in your book in, in the context of regulating big tech in the United States, making sure that not all the chips in the world are controlled by Google and Amazon?
1: Well, I think you'd have to first ask yourself, will regulation, do, uh, will regulation make the industry better or worse uh, in terms of the outcomes it's providing? And I think the chip industry has got a pretty impeccable track record at producing products that get cheaper every year and more powerful every year. Um, So if you were looking for negative effects of monopolies or oligopolies, you'd expect to see higher prices or quality deterioration. And in fact, in the chip industry, you get exponential improvements in in quality for roughly the same price. And that's been the track record uh, determined by Moore's law for over half a century. So I I really struggle to see a good argument in favor um, of any sort of increased regulation on antitrust grounds. Even though there are a small number of companies, they produce just incredible uh, advances in terms of the products
0: we can rely on with no increase in price. But to be clear, um, Google and Amazon don't manufacture chips. They buy the chips and then they run them, they run our digital economy out of their data centers. So the question of regulation is we're not regulating chip manufacturers, particularly we can't if they're in Taiwan. Uh, the, the question is regulating the users of chips you mentioned um moore's law chris uh, in our piece on you when you know, when we talking about the book we talked about tongue-in-cheek miller's law um, might there be a kind of he- hegelian element to your argument in the sense that at some point moore's law is physically going to hit a wall you can't keep on doubling the power of computer chips every 18 months because of physical limitations. Are we finally coming to recognize the importance of chips uh, at the dusk of the history of the chip?
1: You know, it's it's possible. Uh, and certainly as every year passes and as transistors shrink and shrink close to atomic level, we inevitably get closer to that point. But I'm struck by the fact that it's now been 40 years since uh, leaders of the chip industry have been projecting the impending end of Moore's law. Gordon Moore himself even uh, uh, expressed doubt that Moore's law could continue in the early 2000s. And these predictions have always been wrong. And In my conversation with uh, all sorts of startups and innovators at different aspects of the semiconductor production process, I'm really uh, impressed with the number of new ideas to keep transistors scaling so that they get smaller and smaller every year. Right now, we've got a pretty clear pathway if you look at the plans by companies like TSMC or Intel to keep shrinking transistors through around the end of the decade, beyond 2030, uh, it's unclear, but it's always unclear if you look seven or 10 years out And so my bet would be on the side of the optimists who think that there really will be uh, plenty of scope to keep scaling down well past 2030, even though no one can tell you confidently that that's the case. Um, But the track record of people betting against Moore's Law has not been a a pretty impressive track record.
0: Is it possible in the not too distant future that even though Moore's Law can continue uh, and we can continue to improve the power of the, the chip, that there won't be any need for it? At a certain point, we'll recognize that we're happy with the power of the chip, or is there some something inevitable about Moore's law in terms of the demand and its usage?
1: It seems to me that our demand for both storage of data and computation on data has a long, long way to run. Uh, no one uh, that I know, uh, would be happy to downgrade to a a five or 10-year-old phone or PC. Um, And the types of applications that we increasingly want to run, especially in data centers, rely on more and more computing power. Chat GPT would have been uh, unfeasible a decade ago um, because of the amount of computation required. And that's true of all sorts of different applications that are relying on artificial intelligence. So maybe at some point in the far distant future, we'll say we've got enough computation to suit all of our needs, Um, But despite repeated predictions that we were near that point in the past, in fact, we found plenty of ways to uh, use computing power. And I think the challenge we face is actually on the opposite side, that we're going to run out of supply of computing power uh, before we run out of demand.
0: What about on the consumer side? Uh, it, It seems to me as a loyal Apple iPhone user that The differences between an iPhone 11, 12, 13, 14, and smaller and smaller, they may be powered by more and more powerful chips, but it doesn't really make that much difference from a consumer point of view. Is there any truth to that? You know, I
1: think there's some truth to that, but it's really easy to forget all of the applications we take for granted today, but were hard to imagine 10 years ago. Today, we just assume that our phones can stream video and get frustrated by just a couple of seconds of buffering, whereas... Ten years ago, that was almost impossible um, to get the type of bandwidth needed uh, to, to, to run that type of application over a cell phone network. And, and so it's easy to, I think, uh, just take for granted changes that were uh, really hard to actually produce uh, not so long ago. I think you're right to say that the innovation we've seen in smartphones has probably uh, declined in its rate of improvement. But we're now 10 years into the smartphone, more than 10 years into the smartphone's. Um, life And so it's understandable that just like we had a growth rate in PCs that was rapid and then leveled off. And today, no one is that excited to get a new PC. Now we're at that point with smartphones. The question is, uh, what's the next trend of applying computing power to devices? And I think you look at, first off, automobiles. Uh, with increasing autonomous features, and then second, data centers, which we don't think about uh, nearly as much as we ought to, but in fact are supplying all of the new artificial intelligence applications that we take for granted. All of that's only possible because we're getting more computing power in your auto and in the data centers that you're accessing.
0: Chris, you mentioned that one of the reasons why the book has done so well is you got lucky. Um, Fortune, of course, favors the brave and chip war for all its success and awards in in some ways um, got lucky with the United States hitting China with sweeping tech export controls, particularly uh, 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 on the chip, uh, chip front, uh, computer chip ban. One headline suggests signals new era as Biden and Xi meet. How significant in your view is in 2022 is this computer chip ban? When historians look back at 2022, is that going to be one of the events that really define the year in broad economic and geopolitical terms?
1: I think it will. I mean, it's, it's, it's important to note that the chip ban is not going to have an immediate macroeconomic effect or an immediate tech effect on uh, China in a large scale sense. The, the types of chips that were banned to sell to China make up only a tiny sliver of U.S.-China Uh, Trade And almost all chips related to smartphones or automobiles or PCs are totally unaffected. So on on the one hand, it's a much more tailored measure than uh, some of the headlines suggest. But in the longer run, because the chips in question target AI applications and data centers, uh, it really, I think, will have a substantial impact on the bifurcation of the US and Chinese technology ecosystems. And I think more than that is that it signals a big shift in the way that the U.S. is thinking about tech competition with China. In the past, the U.S. was pretty focused on preventing military applications of U.S. tech in China, but allowing all sorts of civilian applications. And now with the chip ban, it's saying even civilian AI applications in China will be restricted. So companies like Alibaba or Tencent, which are almost exclusively civilian in their applications, are nevertheless not allowed to buy these ships and bring them into China. And that's a big shift uh, because it moves U.S.-China competition from just being um, about military competition but economic cooperation uh, to a sphere where even tech and economic issues are seen largely in a zero-sum competition
0: lens. Is that wise? We've done some number of shows this year on China, coupled with the noted China expert Orville Shell. Uh, talking about the response to uh in china to Amer- a more hardline american uh attitude towards them uh the chinese have responded with a made in china 2025 plan uh which presumably is is built on not being reliant on american or us uh, supported chips um is is in twenty twenty two, has has there been a profound shift, do you think, within China to this chip war in economic terms?
1: Well, I think actually twenty twenty-two wasn't the profound shift. It really happened in twenty fourteen, which was when the Chinese government identified semiconductors as a vulnerability and set up a number of industrial policy programs, most famous of which was made in China in 2025 to try to bolster its own chip industry and reduce its imports of chips from the US, Taiwan and other countries. So China's actually been pursuing this strategy for almost a decade now. I think 2022 is the year when the US fully realized what was at stake and started using um, some pretty powerful, the blunt tools uh, to respond to uh, what China's uh, strategy had been, which is why I don't think Chinese leaders are actually that surprised that Uh, the U.S. has taken the steps that it's taken and why the response has actually been quite measured. I've seen lots of predictions that China is going to retaliate uh, in painful ways. But one of the, I think, most interesting aspects of all of this is that China's done nothing uh, in retaliation except to promise some additional funding for its own chip
0: industry. It's nice you take the longer term view. It's always easy to see things too immediately in our Twitter culture. Uh, when you look at the White House announcement on their Chips and Science Act, uh, the, the Biden announcement, uh, compared to the, the announcements that Trump made on China, the language is very different. Putting America first, Trump says, Biden says, uh, Chips and Science Act will lower costs, create jobs, strengthen supply chains and counter China, putting the counter China at the end. But they're not doing that different things, are they? I mean, it, it does point to the ironic continuity for all the, the political hysteria over Trump. There is a degree of continuity. And doesn't this Biden policy on China reflect one degree of success of the Trump regime?
1: I think there is a lot of continuity, in, and you really see it not at the level of presidents, because Trump and Biden themselves weren't actually the drivers of semiconductor policy in either administration, but in the national security bureaucracy, which has been pushing this issue uh, for uh, well over half a decade uh, through three different administrations now, starting in the late Obama years. And that's been what's uh, providing the continuity is that in the intelligence agencies, in the Pentagon, in the National Security Council, there's been a focus on this as a priority. Politicians generally don't understand the issue, uh, haven't spent much time thinking through it, certainly haven't master of the intricacies of the semiconductor supply chain but their advisors uh and their intelligence briefers have which is why the u.s has kept pursuing uh, a much tougher line uh despite the political changes at the top
0: of course the unspoken thing well not so much unspoken as unthinkable is war over taiwan um Uh, FT headline earlier this year talked about Taiwanese tensions forcing multinationals to rethink the China risk. Uh, The news today is that uh, uh, with record military incursions from the New York Times, uh, uh, this is a New York Times piece, China is warning Taiwan and and the US. In terms of all this new economic policy, Chris, um, what's your take on 2022 in the context of a a possible war over Taiwan between the United States and China?
1: Well, I'd say, first off, I think we shouldn't assume that something like that is going to happen, and it's probably unlikely if you were to put a probability on it. One hopes so anyway. uh, One certainly hopes so. Um, But I also think the probability has risen relative to what I would have suggested a couple of years ago. And I think what worries me even more than that is is not a, a war and peace binary where peace is the status quo and war is something that looks like a d-day style invasion uh, of China by, uh, of Taiwan by China, but rather an intensification of uh, tensions and Chinese military pressure that imposes costs on Taiwan and that the US and other partners struggle to respond to. And that ratcheting up of tensions I think is quite uh, potentially dangerous. We've seen China uh, not only in the recent headlines but also around Nancy Pelosi's visit. Uh, undertake a series of military exercises, for example, designed to practice a blockade of Taiwan, which wouldn't be a war necessarily, uh, but would be a, a step that is normally considered an act of war. Uh, and that's the type of scenario that I really worry a lot about. Because I think my guess is that the Chinese government realizes that a amphibious uh, attack on Taiwan is unlikely to work and very likely to trigger a US response. But As a result, they're likely to try to take steps that are below the threshold of what would trigger a U.S. response. And those are precisely the scenarios that we'd struggle to respond effectively to.
0: Chris, one of the things that worries me is the rise of what we might think of as a uh, a, a, a hawkish line, even amongst liberals on China. We've done lots of shows, one with the journalist Isaac Stonefish. Has a book out, America Second, suggesting that all the American elites now are in the pay of China. Should we be concerned in 2022 about this degree of hysteria about China, which is not only affecting traditional hawks in Washington, D.C., but people both on the left and the right of American politics? I think
1: hysteria is never a good thing, but I I think there's reason for more concern than Ever before, I mean, I think anyone who looks at the military balance in the Taiwan Straits and understands the extent to which China has been building up its military power with the primary aim of developing the capabilities of taking Taiwan, uh, that's a pretty clear data point. Now, it doesn't mean that China is going to try to do something, but it means it's uh, having a lot of success in developing many of the capabilities you'd need to do that. Uh, And that's something I think we can't just ignore. So hysteria, I think no one would embrace, but I don't think it's right to look at the reality the facts on the ground and say that nothing has changed relative to 10 years ago. And I don't think I would call it hysteria to say something has changed. uh, And it's only rational for us to change our uh, perception of risk accordingly.
0: Chris, last but not least, uh, you actually first appeared on Keenon uh, in March of this year, you had a very impressive op-ed in the new york times uh, after the russian invasion of, of ukraine uh you were talking about the politics of putinomics uh you have a book uh, you, you one of your previous books is putinomics power and money in resurgent russia and then in july you actually you came on asking whether it was possible that the russians are now winning the war in ukraine um you you wear a number of hats you're a chip expert you're an authority on china but also on the international politics of Putin and Putinism. Has 2022, at least uh, on December the 27th, has it been uh, a a catastrophic year for Putin and Putinism, particularly in the context of the Ukraine? Have they lost, at least in the context of 2022?
1: I think it's been a catastrophic year for Russia, but I wouldn't say it's been catastrophic for Putin. Um, He's still in power now. He looks likely to stay in power through the end of next year, although there's some uncertainty around that prediction. And the Russians very evidently think that time is on their side in Ukraine, which is why they're continuing to pursue the war in the way that they are. Um, Now, certainly Putin didn't envision 2022 developing in the way that it did. He was expecting a short war and he's gotten a long one. Um, But I think some of the, the Western triumphalism about Ukraine's successes, which are Impressive and about Western support, which has been very important in uh, in backing Ukraine. I miss the fact that Russia still controls a big chunk of Ukraine's territory and looks very unlikely to leave anytime soon. And what's more, they're imposing a much greater cost on the Ukrainian populace than Ukraine managed to impose on Russia. Uh, so this is not a Russian victory, but it's also very clearly not a Russian defeat. Uh, if you were to look at this war from the perspective of history, and Russia's ended up with. A much bigger chunk of Ukrainian territory, uh, with Ukraine severely weakened. Uh, it's hard to describe this, I think, as something that is a a victory for Ukraine or the West. Uh, so Putin's not victorious, but neither are we. Uh, and I think we should temper our uh, optimism uh, with some realism about Russia's staying power in this conflict.
0: Wise words. Certainly the Russians and the Chinese are much more capable of playing the long game than the Americans. Uh, Chris, let's Finally, finally, think about 2023. This time last year, you certainly couldn't have imagined 2022 as being the year of the chip or the year of Chris Miller. It's always hard to pick out the future. So um, I'm not going to embarrass you by asking you for exact predictions, but any suggestions, any, any tips for thinking about 2023? What will you be looking for as a scholar of China, of Russia, and of america's role in a, in a, in a, in a world dominated increasingly by computer chips
1: i have got three things that i'm i'm looking at first is how the chinese government in general and xi jinping respond to the massive shift they've had in the zero covid policy over the past couple of weeks and the number of people that look likely to die in China over the next couple of weeks is going to be a very large number if any of the mm. epidemiological projections are right. And uh, I do wonder what impact that's going to have on Chinese politics. It could have very different impacts, hard to know, but I think it'll be important uh, no matter which way uh, it goes. I mean, China's going to have all of the trauma of COVID in in just one month's time uh, from you know, mid-December to, to middle of January, which the... The rest of the world experienced over many months, or in some cases, a couple of years. And so that that can't not have an impact on Chinese politics and society. The second thing I think is going to be really important, I'm focusing on it, is the question of inflation, uh, which often seems quite technical, um, but in reality is going to be a huge social and political force uh, if it persists. And right now, in 2022, we've had a year of. Uh, almost everyone underestimating how high inflation would be and how durable it would be. Now, it's going to come down to some extent, I think, next year, but to what extent it comes down and over uh, over what time horizon? Does it look like it's durably returning to the old number or entering a new period of high inflation for a decade? is going to be a critical question for politics, uh, for economics, for tech companies, uh, which had bet on low interest rates for a long time. No one knows the answer, but I think people are too quickly writing off uh, inflation is just a 2022 problem. I'm not so sure. Third thing I think is uh, is globalization. Uh, I hear a lot of talk about deglobalization right now as Russia and China uh, begin to be partially decoupled from the US economy and from other economies. But I don't think that's exactly right. And I look at uh, announcements of US and Japanese and Taiwanese companies investing in uh, in, in, in partner countries. And I think the shape of globalization is changing, uh, but we're not necessarily entering a world of deglobalization. And understanding how that trend is going to develop, I think is absolutely uh, critical, both for understanding the US-China relationship, which is going to be affected um, by it, but also the rest of the global economy, um, because we're used to talking about a single global economy. But in fact, historically, we've often had uh, uh, spheres where we had different globalized economies that were somewhat isolated from each other, um, but integrated uh, with, with many other countries participating. And so that, I think, is a key trend that we're going to see develop uh, over the next couple of years. Uh, but certainly next year, we'll get some uh, new data points as to where exactly it's headed.